Hello everyone, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And it seems like quite a while, does it not, since the last programme, but as I should think probably most of you will know by now, I've been on what I've been calling anyway a, a paternity leave, as it were, from the podcast for the last few weeks. On the 24th of October, I'm very delighted to say, our new baby, our little boy Nathaniel, was born. Nathaniel, of course, means gift of God, and we're very conscious of that fact because we were not actually expecting a second child. Our daughter, our first child, was born some 13 years ago, that far back. And so the blessing of a second child after all this time is really very apparent to us. It was a difficult birth. As far as I understand it, all births are difficult, but this was certainly a very difficult one, and uh, I won't go into details, but eventually he was born between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, weighing a massive 9 pounds and 15 ounces. So I think that probably deserves to be classified as a whopper. Uh, It was very tiring for my wife, of course, um, as many of you out there will know from similar experiences. And it was tiring for me, not to the same extent, but it was tiring. And I was totally spaced out by the experience, actually. I was d- disoriented, I would say. Um, the thing that I found particularly odd was that my days were so muddled. I mean, he was born between two and three in the morning, and then I went home for about three hours sleep, and I got up to what seemed to me to be the next day. And yet it wasn't. And I had to constantly tell people that he was born earlier today, and yet I was feeling it was the next day. So that was a very odd experience. I didn't get over that for quite a few days, actually. And uh, he is very well. He is uh, putting on weight. For those of you who are not familiar with little babies, they lose some of their birth weight and then put it back on again. And he's there now. He's back to where he was. And uh, he's keeping us awake at night, of course, which it's a bit annoying, but it's a good thing. That's what should be happening. Um... And I must say thank you ever so much to the very many of you who sent good wishes. Wonderful to receive those and to know that listeners to TMR do care. Um, Thank you very much for doing that. Uh, In the meantime, I have just not been able to get my head around the idea of doing podcasts. Um, Maybe some of you thought that it was all over, that TMR was going to grind to a halt. That's not the case. Um, I have been thinking about it, of course, and have been planning for things to happen in the future. I mean, I was expecting to come back to it a little sooner than this, uh, but that's just the way it's been. It's uh, it's been, as I say, a very disorienting experience. But we're back today, um, and essentially today this is a an opportunity for me to check in with you and to say I'm still here and to share with you something of interest, and I'll, I'll be speaking about that in a minute. We'll be starting properly next week. And I will just say that during the time I did try to upgrade the Mind Renewed website in my spare moments. I have said that I would try to do that in the past, but I never got around to it. And I thought, well, okay, this is something I can do in between nappy changes. So I had a go and what a waste of time that turned out to be. Not a total waste, I suppose, because I did learn some things about the Joomla content management system upon which the site is built. But uh, I have to say, upgrading from one Joomla version to another is a complete nightmare. I mean, okay, however good the content management system is, and it is good, the upgrade process is not good. Whenever I tried, I I didn't do it straight to the website. I formed an experimental backup version of the site first and then messed about with that. But whatever I did to that one, the the upgrade either broke the site completely, giving me that uh, white screen of death with some error messages on it, or it did in fact upgrade with errors and then led to some vital component on the site not working properly. 
Joomla's free, so I suppose I can't complain, but very frustrating, and it looks like the only solution is going to be to start afresh, to build a new website and then copy all the contents from the current one over to the new and then shift the Mind Renew domain name to the new site when it's all finished. That's going to take some time, so I don't quite know when that process is going to be finished. Let me say, if there is anybody out there who is familiar with Joomla, please do get in touch because I really could do with the help. That would be wonderful to be able to email you and say, look, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? So if there is anybody out there familiar with that, that would be great to know. So as I say, I'm just really checking in today and uh, I'm going to share with you an item of interest, as I do from time to time. And I'm sharing with you my recent interview with James Corbett. Uh, James kindly invited me on to his series called Film Literature and the New World Order. This is over at CorbettReport.com. And he invited me to talk about the film, which I think is a great film, called Being There. And he didn't invite me as an expert. I made it quite clear that this is just a film that I love and have grown to appreciate uh, the more I've seen it. So neither of us is an expert on this, but it was a very interesting conversation. I know that quite a few of you probably will have heard this already. So if that's the case, either you're not listening to what I'm saying now or you can just turn off now. But um, many of you will not have heard it. So I hope you do enjoy it. I was a bit nervous, I have to confess, but I think I did okay. I mean, as I said to James, it's one thing to be here behind the microphone in charge of an interview, which I've become very used to over the years, but it's another thing to be quizzed about something myself, especially when I'm, as I say, not an expert on it, but I think I did okay. And uh, James has uh, a very good video to go with this as well, so I shall embed that at the website in the show notes. As I say, we're going to start properly next week, and I'll have more to say about that at the end of this. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Here is my chat with James from last month on the great movie Being There. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and welcome back to the Film Literature in the New World Order podcast for the month of October 2016. As promised last month, we are going to be talking about the film Being There, directed by Hal Ashby, starring Peter Sellers, based on the book by Jerzy Kozinski. And what an interesting movie it is. Quite a change of pace from last month's edition of the series, where we were talking about the Purge election year. Here we have a very interesting and worthwhile movie. So I hope you did watch the movie in preparation for this conversation. And if you did so, you will be suitably rewarded by our guest and his insights. Our guest should be familiar, I think, to a large portion of the Corbett Report audience. He is Julian Charles of The Mind Renewed at themindrenewed.com. And people might be familiar with him from nothing else, if not his interviews of myself, which are in the archives. I'll include the links in the show notes for this conversation in case you're interested, because he is an excellent interviewer in his own right, and I think brings out the best in his interview subjects. So I'm hoping to turn the microphone around on him and put him under the spotlight a little bit today. Julian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Well, thank you very much, James, for inviting me on. And uh, you shouldn't say that I'm going to enlighten people because I don't think I am. I, I maybe know know what I'm doing now with, with interviewing, but I'm not sure that I know what I'm doing when it comes to talking at length about movie. Well, <laughs> let's, let's find out. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yeah. this, this movie... Uh, 
was really recommended to me by yourself on your podcast. You were you had a conversation um, where you were talking about various movies and uh, pop culture works and how they relate to these these types of subject matters that we often talk about in our respective programs. And you talked about the film being there, which I had not seen at the time that I was listening to your podcast, but it sounded intriguing enough that I gave it a try. And lo and behold, it really is. It's a well-made film. It's a very interesting film. It stands on its own, and I think it has some very interesting commentary on the subject of how the world really works and what really lies behind the world of politics, um, even if it does so in a lighthearted way. I'm not even sure if that's the right way of framing it, but I'll I'll turn this over to you. Why Why did this movie catch your attention, and why did you bring it to the attention of your own podcast audience? I see what you mean about it being light-hearted. Um, I do think it's a kind of it is it's kind of one big joke in, in a way all the way through the film. But it's not just a piece of comedy, is it? There is a depth to it, which uh, no doubt we'll we'll go to in this in this conversation. Um, I mean, the thing that really made me want to talk about it, and I'm happy to talk with you about it today, is uh, to be quite honest, it's the ending of the film, which comes as such a such a shock, uh, really, because of the, the symbolism that's there and casts light upon one's understanding of what one has seen so far in the film. So, I mean, at the ending, you have the character called Benjamin Rand, who is this um, oligarch, essentially, and uh, he has died. And there is his funeral that's taking place. And the president of the United States is is uh, giving this eulogy, but he's also quoting from Ben Rand's comments, uh, which are quite amusing in their own right. And as this is going on, you have the pallbearers uh, carrying this coffin towards the, I guess it's the, the family tomb, or maybe family in an extended uh, esoteric sense. I don't know, but it's shaped like a pyramid. And at the top, it has this eye of Horus. And uh, you think, what on earth is going on here? And as that coffin is going towards the tomb, there are these people who seem to be their elitist individuals. They're obviously kingmakers or, or president choosers. And they're having this very quiet conversation as they're carrying the coffin. Who is going to be the, the next president of the United States? And they're whispering backwards and forwards in there. And uh, they're saying, well, we, we can't really have the same guy, you know. How about this main character of the movie who is called Chance? And we'll talk about him in a, in a few minutes, no doubt. And um, they're, they're basically saying, well, you know, we don't know anything about Chance. He doesn't seem to have a history. He doesn't have a past. Uh, he, uh, he hasn't got anything that anybody could uh, blackmail him with. Um, he's ideal. He's a non-entity. We can sort of paint him as we like. Yes, let's have him. <laughs> let's put him forward. He's, he's our man. Obviously, the film goes on and there are some further jokes, which we'll discuss in a minute. Um, but I just thought that scene opens up a window into one's interpretation of the whole movie. And the, kind of in retrospect, you, you realize this one big joke that's been going on is a commentary upon power and class and privilege and all these things. And how we as people who are involved in the societies that we, we live in are influenced by um, opinion makers and the media and our, our thoughts, our own thoughts, are we molded by what we see and therefore interpret to those who are presented to us as power figures and politicians and the like? Are, are we molded in that interpretation to, to say, oh, these are really important people. Yes, I'm going to give them my vote and that sort of thing. The whole thing is like a, a load of questions that I think are, that come through that final scene. That's, that's how it works for me anyway. And, uh, so that's essentially what made me really interested in the movie, to answer your question. That is an excellent analysis. And I, I agree completely with your 
experience of the end of the film uh, changing your perception of the beginning or the what what has come before. I think all of those mm. elements were there. The, the satire, the commentary were there, and but they mm. did seem more like a joke, like like a type of comedy that was playing out. Until that ending scene in which it's really more thrust into your face what what this is really um, gesturing towards. And then, of course, the final, final image, (laughs) interesting uh, in and of itself, where he walks out onto the water. And uh, again, we'll, we'll probably circle back to that. But you do gesture to the fact that this is centering around this character named Chance the Gardener. And for the naughty listeners in the audience who haven't seen the movie, perhaps we can just go a little bit into a summarization of who is Chance the Gardener and how does he stumble into this strange world of uh, political kingmakers? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll I'll try to uh, be as brief as I can about this. Um, okay, so we have this character called Chance, which is a rather interesting name, and uh, it's played by Peter Sellers, one of my heroes. And he's, he's kind of this simple-minded... I don't know if I like that phrase, but that's how most people, I think, describe him. Simple-minded, middle-aged man, roughly about 50 years old, you know, and uh, he lives in this well-appointed house in Washington, D.C. with a character called the Old Man, who you you don't get to see until the old man's on his deathbed. (laughs) Um, And he also lives with this black maid called Louise who provides chance with his food, and he spent his whole life right from a child in this house. He's never left the house, and interestingly, he... He spends most of his time doing one of two things, or in fact, two things at the same time very often, watching TV and tending the walled garden of the house. And that's it, basically, apart from normal bodily functions, etc. You know, we don't don't really know in the film why he's there. We know more in the book, actually. Um, His mother died at birth. The old man will not not tell him who the father was. So he's, he's been there right from birth, really. And he gets all of his information about the world from watching television and from interacting with the garden. So everything for him is only real if it appears as flickering things on the television or the natural cycles going on with the seasons. That's basically it. And um, in the book, it says, um, this is a little quote here, as long as one didn't look at people, they did not exist. Because this is speaking from within his mind. They began to exist as on TV when one turned one's eyes on them. So that's how he saw the world. And um, when I first saw this movie, you know, you can imagine just from what I've described there that it seemed really sad, really depressing. <laughs> that's, that's how it came over. Because it's, you know, it starts with this middle-aged man in bed and Schubert's unfinished symphony is being played on this TV screen that's in his bedroom. That's quite an interesting choice of music there. There's lots of interesting music that's, that's uh, chosen for this film. So it's the unfinished symphony, so perhaps saying something about this unfinished character. Anyway, he's just uh, he just wakes up and he looks blankly at the screen and it's like super realist exploration of what it is to be really lonely and depressed. That's, that's how the film comes over. But as it goes on, it becomes more clear that it's uh, this gradually unfolding joke and at the same time a deeper commentary throughout the film. It's a very weird experience, I, I, I found. Anyway, so the old man dies, and this character, Chance, doesn't really understand what's going on, and he uh, he's asked by lawyers, does he want to make a claim against the house? Does he want to state how, how it is he's been living here all these years? Has he got any proof that he was employed as a gardener, etc., etc.? And he hasn't got any proof of anything whatsoever. He doesn't seem to have any any history, no birth certificate or anything, and and so he has to leave the house. He goes out into the, into the real world, as it were, and... Um, there's more in the film at this point than there is in the book, but um, 
because he's so addicted to television, he walks by a television shop and he, for the first time, sees himself in a television that's actually in the window of the shop because the CCTV that's recording him. And that's a kind of illumination. Well, it, sh- it should be an illumination moment for him. It should be a self-awareness moment. But of course, it isn't really because he is this weird kind of blank character. So he's, he's not just simple minded. He's He's really a blank, like a slate upon which people can write, which I think is quite an important point in the whole movie. So he there's this kind of turning point in the film, but as this happens, he, he just stumbles backwards and he he's knocked by the, the limousine of uh, the wife of an oligarch, essentially, and uh, she's very concerned that uh, he might want to claim against the family or perhaps bring the family into disrepute, so she's very concerned about him, takes him back to the big mansion where the oligarch lives, Mr. Rand, Benjamin Rand. Her name is Eve in the film, although E.E. in the book. Um, Benjamin Rand is is very impressed by this character because essentially he just writes on to this blank character called Chance, his own prejudices and his own desires and his own way of looking at the world. And Chance, who's now called Chancey Gardner, and I'll have to explain why, <laughs> um, in the limousine while going to the house, um, Peter Sellers, uh, Chance, is uh, offered, a I think it's a, a drink of brandy in the car by Eve. And he accepts, and because he's, he's not familiar with uh, alcoholic beverages at all. And so she asks, what's your name? And um, he says, well, he's about to say Chance, um, Chance the Gardner. But he sputters on this alcohol and and she thinks he says Chancy Gardner. So she writes on her own misunderstanding of him onto his character, just like everybody else does in the film. And Benjamin Rand is very impressed by this blank character who he mistakes for a businessman. And then the film goes on with Chance unwittingly going up the social ladder, meeting the president of the United States, um, going on television. The actual population of the United States is really impressed by this guy who talks supposedly knowledgeably about the economy, although all the time he's actually referring to the garden because that's what he's familiar with. He talks about the seasons and plants growing in the garden, and that's misunderstood as a metaphor for the economy. So eventually uh, there's this uh, kind of romantic attachment between um, Rand's wife and Chauncey Gardner, essentially because the, the dying Rand, who has got this rare blood disease, wants his wife to be happy and encourages her to uh, form a romantic attachment to Chauncey Gardner, who he's so impressed with. And you can see that this character is just being built up, this blank is being built up and up to the point where, of course, Benjamin Rand does eventually die. And it looks like Chance is somehow going to take over the whole estate. And as we said at the beginning of the conversation gets tipped to be the next president of the United States by this uh, sort of esoteric group of elitists. Mm. And well, right at the end, then there is this business of him walking out onto the water. And that's something that people have criticized, um, because it does seem to be a big change in the movie there. It's as if, you know, um, it's as if he's no longer a blank slate, who is misunderstood by everybody. Now he is well, what's the director saying? That he is actually some sort of guru? It, it's it's a weird so it's a weird moment right. at that point. Or it could be but a I commentary like it. it could be a commentary to the effect of, well, these people who come along in history and talk about gardening metaphors and are put on pedestals as superhumans are maybe a commentary on that. But at any rate, it is such a very jarring way to end the movie. I mean, it's not like that is yeah. the point at which we sus- ha- are forced to suspend disbelief. <laughs> Clearly, the entire movie has been quite 
silly in a lot of ways, but it has certainly adhered to most, uh, you know, physical principles, if nothing else. And uh, that is such a a moment of real change in the tone that, as we say, I think is contributory to that experience of going back and having to sort of reevaluate your Mm -hmm. sense of what the movie was about. Because I think you're right, it does build up as a type of joke. And if it was a broad joke, one would expect that he would be forced into a situation where he would be exposed and he wouldn't know what to say and everything would come crashing down or perhaps he would, you know, somehow say just the right thing again and, you know, propagate him to a different sphere or whatever. But I think the the story ends at just the right place at the point at which they're going to try to do this. I don't want to see them, you know, trying to thrust him onto the political stage and all of that. I don't think that would have been a a much broader satire. But I think yes, we, that would have been terrible. I agree with you. Yeah. 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 But I, I think we do have to try to pin this down to some sort of genre, at least to try to make sense of what's happening here. And I think satire is the appropriate framing device for this. And I'll actually point listeners to Roger Ebert's uh, evaluation of the film from his Great Movies collection. He wrote this in 1997, so almost 20 years after the, the movie came out. And uh, I think he pointed out quite aptly what this movie is essentially about, although there are obviously many tangents here. But he says, Satire is a threatened species in American film, and when it does occur, it's usually broad and slapstick, as in the Mel Brooks films. Being there, directed by Hal Ashby, is a rare and subtle bird that finds its tone and stays with it. It has the appeal of an ingenious intellectual game, in which the hero survives a series of challenges he doesn't understand, using words that are both universal and meaningless. But are chances sayings noticeably less useful than when the president tells us about a bridge to the 21st century? Sensible public speech in our time is limited by one, the need to stay within the confines of the 10-second TV soundbite, two, the desire to avoid being pinned down to specific claims or promises, and three, the abbreviated attention span of the audience, which, like Chance, likes to watch, but always has a channel changer poised. If Chance's little slogans reveal how superficial public utterance can be, his reception reveals still more. Because he is wasp, middle-aged, well-groomed, dressed in tailored suits, and speaks like an educated man, he is automatically presumed to be a person of substance. He is, in fact, socially naive. You're always going to be a little boy, Louise tells him. But this leads to a directness that can be mistaken for confidence, as when he addresses the president by his first name, or enfolds his hands in both of his own. The movie argues that if you look right, sound right, speak in platitudes, and have powerful friends— you can go far in our society. And I think this points out at least two important aspects of what's going on in the satire, one of which is the the appearance really does make the man, and people will assume so much from the appearance and the way someone presents themselves to you. And the other part is the way the medium is the message, and in the TV-dominated 10-second TV soundbite uh, era of reporting and, and understanding our world, it really is meaningless, universal, vague comfortably appealing statements like talking about the economy in terms of a garden that that has the most appeal to the widest audience and thus will become the most politically popular. I think that's obviously, I think, two of the prongs of this satire. And um, I just want to see if, what you think about the idea of framing this as broadly a satire. I think so. I'd like to, you have in a sense covered what I'm about to say, but perhaps just stretch it a little bit further in that I think it's also a parable a satirical parable that is a bit of a warning to us as well. So you have that business about the medium and the, and the message, uh, as you've been talking about. Um, and I think actually one of the things it's saying to us is that the images that we receive 
through television in particular, but obviously not just that, when they are controlled by those who perhaps should not be in control of them, they are actually conditioning us to interpret the world in a certain way. So we're not just watching those images in a controlled way ourselves necessarily. We're, we're receiving those passively so that when we see somebody who is dressed the right way, talks the right way, etc., we are tempted to evaluate those people as we've been conditioned to evaluate them. So I think it's a warning for all of us that, you know, who, who controls the media is actually controlling our perception of those that they're actually putting forward into positions of power. And because they look right, we'll say, oh, yes, that's the kind of person I would expect to be in power. I will give them my assent. That's and just I a little extension. A, I think another aspect of that is that it seems to be a commentary on the the richest and most powerful people in some ways seem to be the easiest to fool because they are expecting, they are projecting their own wit, acumen, mm. intelligence, whatever, on onto this blank slate in a way that perhaps someone like Louise, the maid, um, would not. Mm. And there is a, that poignant scene where Chance ends up on TV uh, through a ridiculous series of events. And she, she says, look, it's a white man's world. <laughs> you know, he's, he's as yeah, stupid lovely. as a, a child and he's up on TV <laughs> talking, to, uh, talking to the president. So uh, yeah, sure. there is there certainly there's that commentary going on as well. But let's let's mm. get into the, the meat and potatoes. Then if this does, of course, revolve around Benjamin Rand, what an interesting choice of name for that character, Rand. Absolutely. And yes, uh, being yes. this oligarch industrialist, I, th I would say that one of the, I mean, I don't think it's a direct parallel or anything, but perhaps one of the templates for Rand would be a Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller <laughs> Sr., who in fact was buried in a cemetery or interred in a cemetery with a giant obelisk on top. And you can go and visit the John D. Rockefeller obelisk where people lay dimes because, of course, he was famous for having carefully staged PR events towards the end of his life, giving out dimes to young children because he was such a wonderful old man. Um, but yes, there's this giant obelisk, um, Egyptian obelisk at his <laughs> gravesite, which one wonders if, if anyone has really thought about the significance thereof. But at any rate, it's put quite in your face in a very visceral way in this film, as you say. Um, but uh, obviously, this is one of the oligarchical rulers of the United States. He, he says, I've been described as a kingmaker. He meets with the president and tells, you know, gives him advice on his speech and things like this. So we start to see a bit of that. And then, of course, as you say, in the final scene with the pallbearers, ultimately deciding who will be the next president of the United States and trying to decide on Chance the Gardener, or kind of seeming to decide on Chance the Gardener, precisely because he doesn't seem to have much of a past, which, of course, again, is another, I think, commentary, which uh, so much of this movie, I think, resonates even more a couple of decades later. There's the aspect yes, yes. of the the, uh, the dumbing down of society through the television medium as the way of portraying this in little sound bites, which I think is obviously played out and is obviously coming to fruition with this reality TV show of a selection cycle in 2016 in the United States. But also the idea of a relative unknown with a murky past, well, that's all the better because you can't really, you know, drudge anything up from his past, seems to have been what played out essentially with the hope and change takeover of 2008 with Barack Obama, who has a relatively murky past and has a lot of secrecy surrounding a lot of his early years and childhood and uh, even his university career. Mm big question marks over that, which were never really solved. And <laughs> still... No, could, could, I, could I 
Yes, yeah, please yeah. do. I just, I, I, just, uh, I dragged up a, a quote, actually, because that was in my mind as well. And I don't know whether people have read it, but there is an article written in 2013 by Wayne Allen Root called Barack Obama, the Ghost of Columbia University. And uh, there's a paragraph here, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Do you mind if I read it? Please go ahead. All right. Uh, I just returned from New York, where I attended my 30th Columbia University reunion. I celebrated my, with my esteemed classmates, everyone except Barack Obama. As usual, he wasn't there. Not even a video greeting, not a personalized letter to his classmates, nothing. But worse, no one in our 30th reunion ever met him. The President of the United States is the ghost of Columbia University. I am a graduate of Columbia University, class of 1983. That's the same class Barack Obama claims to have graduated from. We shared the same exact major, political science. We were both pre-law. It was a small class, about 700 students. The political science department's even smaller and closer-knit, maybe 150 students. I thought I knew or met at least once, or certainly saw in classes, every fellow poli-sci classmate in my four years at Columbia, but not Obama. No one ever met him. Even worse, no one even remembers seeing that unique, memorable face. Think about that for a minute. Our classmate is President of the United States. Shouldn't someone remember him or at least claim to remember him? It's an amazing paragraph. <laughs> it puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And it really does seem a uh, chance, chance the gardener type of situation. Um, which I think, again, it's it's the the the, the phenomenon of satire. Of ultimately, um, if you live long enough, you will see the satire come to literal fruition in a lot of cases. <laughs> although, str- although strangely, he's a kind of sort of a mix between uh, George W. and uh, Obama, isn't he? He has the, as it were, the simplicity of George W. But the uh, the obscurity of Obama. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Well, um, so I, I think that I mean clearly there's that aspect of it going on, but. Let's let's look at some of the uh, the underlying basis for this this world of being there, which is clearly run by these oligarchical figures, these industrialists. And you note that you had read the book version of this. I have, yes, that's right. Can you can you talk about some of the the differences? Is is that aspect of it fleshed out in any more detail in the book version? Less detail. Certainly. I mean, at the end, there isn't the scene that, you know, as I said, really inspired me to want to talk about this movie. Well, that scene isn't there in the book. There, there's a, a bit of it. There's a little meeting between, they're clearly people of great influence, and I think they're talking about who should be the next vice president. But it's a very short chapter at the end, and there's no, it's not at the funeral, and there's no walking on water or anything like that. So, Although actually, I do think the film is very faithful to the book, but they've extended it slightly, with extended some of those themes, and uh, obviously they've had to change things to make it work cinematically. But I think it's pretty faithful. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know mm. anything about Jerzy uh, Kaczynski's biography? I know a few things. Um, I mean, he's a Polish-American novelist. He had Jewish parents. Um, he was therefore around the you know the time of the the Second World War, um, living with his family in a in a state of fear, and uh, you know they were they were helped by local people. Um, Catholic priest helped them forge a baptismal certificate for him. Yeah, they did escape the Holocaust because of this help they received. Um, and there are a number of things about his life which I think suggest that he saw in Chauncey Gardner something autobiographical perhaps I'll come back to that in a second only slightly i mean he um he studied history he became an academic of sorts he served in the polish army he wanted to get out 
of the um, Soviet bloc area. So he uh, apparently forged some letters from non-existent Soviet authorities, and he created a fake foundation that would sponsor him to go abroad. And he managed to get out. He then did odd jobs in the US. I think I think he drove a truck for a while, but he then retrained at Columbia University, funnily enough. Um, and he won lots of grants to do writing. He then actually became a lecturer in the States as well, even places like Yale, Princeton, other universities. Um, he married, this is interesting, an American steel heiress in 1962. Um, she then died and left him out of her will. And uh, then he married again, and this is also interesting, a member of the Bavarian nobility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know what I mean? He had a very yes. strange... Well, an, an extremely thought, you know? unlikely yeah, yeah. biography in some ways, and uh, yes. made all the more bi- uh, unlikely because apparently he was a congenital liar who um, not many people were ever able really to come to the truth or falsity of a lot of the stories he told about his earlier life. Or even his ongoing life. Um, And I get this from a couple of different sources that I want to just talk a little bit about because they do touch on those interesting parts of his biography. Um, There's an article from 2007 called The Rise and Fall of Jerzy Kaczynski, which is written by Philip Routh, which notes uh, his marriage, as you say, to uh, Mary Howard Weir, Weir, the widow of a steel magnate. Um, who had come to admire his academic writing, and that led to their first meeting. And she employed him to catalog the books in her library, and they ended up getting married for a few years anyway. But that's when he apparently was introduced to some of the types of figures that perhaps he was satirizing in uh, being there, including Henry Kissinger, who was perhaps one of the uh, the people that uh, that he, he hobnobbed with. Uh, this, again, from the rise and fall of Jerzy Kaczynski, quote, Away from the public spotlight at dinner and cocktail parties held in New York penthouses, Kaczynski was on a first-name basis with the famous Henry Kissinger, fashion designer Oscar de la Renta, theater critic John Simon, Senator Jacob Javits, and also with the anonymous bankers and industrialists whose decisions drive the world's economy. He was often the center of attention, for he he had the gift of beguiling. And uh, it gets even stranger from there, in fact. Um, There was a a biography that came out in 1996 that was reviewed in the Los Angeles Times by Julia Block Frey called Lying, A Life Story, (laughs) the biography of Jerzy Kaczynski. And uh, that that review opens by saying he loved to tell outrageous lies, particularly to the rich, intellectual, and famous. They were so eager to be entertained, he explained, that they were they willingly suspended disbelief, and they were so confident of their superiority that they deserved to be played for fools. Court gesture to his powerful American friends, that's how Jerzy Kaczynski sometimes referred to himself. So we have a, a man who seemed to be bragging about pulling the wool over the eyes of the likes of Henry mm-hmm. Kissinger and, uh, you know, anonymous bankers and industrialists, because they are easily played for fools, because they tend to think of themselves as superior, and thus they can't be, they can't be fooled by... Uh, mere you know polish immigrant like this guy uh, i think there must be some truth to that that idea i don't know about the stories per se of uh, you know what what particularly he was saying to them but the idea that these these types of rich and powerful people are probably the easiest to dupe because they are so full of themselves and so confident in their own abilities i think that mm. probably plays a large part in the type of satire we see playing out in the movie, anyway, I haven't read the book myself, so I don't know how biting that satire is, but it certainly does play a, a pretty large role in the movie. 
Yes, that's absolutely right. Yes, I mean Benjamin Rand himself is exactly that, isn't he? He's he is kidding himself. There's no doubt about it. He is seeing in chance what he wants to see. You know, I think that you know when I go back to some of these quotes here by Guzinski, it it is interesting that it, it bears out some of the things that you've just said there. I mean, I have here. Let me just quote here. As I have no habits uh, that I require maintaining, I don't even have a favourite menu. The only way for me to live is to be as close to other people as life allows. Not much else stimulates me, and nothing interests me more. So he did have this very keen interest in studying other people. And then he goes on. And this is another quote from him: "Writing fiction is the essence of my life. Uh, whatever else I do revolves around a constant thought: Could I? Can I? Would I? Should I use it in my next novel? I have no children, no family." no relatives, no business or estate to speak of. My books are my only spiritual accomplishment. And no doubt there's hyperbole there, you know, but I get the impression from that that he was living inside a novelization process <laughs> throughout his life, you know, and doing um, what, in a sense, his satire being there criticizes other people for doing. I, th I think he did it himself. Indeed. Well, there's another layer to this onion, because apparently there is significant question about Kaczynski's own authorship of this book and the other books yes. that he wrote. That's right. <laughs> because yeah. it came out uh, in the 1980s, the Village Voice and others started to uncover the fact that he had used editors, in quotation marks, uh, for his books that may or may not have been ghostwriters, or may or may not have, at the very least, translated his books from Polish into English, because apparently he could barely spell or write in English. <laughs> and, oh, um, right. and so it, that might have been that. another aspect Gosh. of this pulling the wool over <laughs> everyone's eyes. Uh, it, it, it's never been, I think, definitively <laughs> determined that these books were all ghostwritten, but uh, certainly the, the suggestion mm. is there, and some of these editors have come forward saying that they did work with him. And uh, the idea is that he, he had the ideas for the, the stories, but basically they were fleshed out by these essentially ghostwriters mm. who were paid by him to do it. Um, well, that that is very interesting because he was he's also being accused of plagiarizing ideas. Yes, <laughs> so yes. maybe he didn't even have the idea as well, um, which is fascinating because there is this a book called The Career of Nicodem Dismas. Yes. I don't know how you pronounce yes, that. Yes. Um, so, which is very popular over in, in Poland, apparently. So, I mean, just looking at the, the rundown of this story here in very brief, there are so many similarities to the chance character. So an unemployed man from the sticks goes to Warsaw to find work. He, uh, he finds a lost invitation to a high society party. He's got this tuxedo, so he decides, well, I can, I can go to that. So he goes to that and he meets an MP who is impressed by him and he impresses lots of people. He's then introduced to a rich landowner who was a former con man. And that landowner makes him manager of his estate. Um, then the, the, the rich man's wife falls in love with him. And thereafter, he, he rises up the social ladder, political ladder. So you know, there are loads of similarities there. Uh, so it's very suspicious. Indeed. It's very interesting. And in fact, it almost seems like perhaps we, sitting here and analyzing this story in terms of Kozinski's biography, may be the, may be the final uh, uh, people to be made fools of by Kozinski, <laughs> in a sense, if it, <laughs> yeah. this is all a stolen yeah. story that he didn't even write anyway. Um, I guess it's all folding in on itself, isn't it? It's getting <laughs> our experience. <laughs> Indeed. Well, then, okay, let's let's circle back then to the, uh, the, the operative part of this story for us, and I'm sure the audience out there, this, this idea of the, the oligarchs who want to put in the most convenient political puppet uh, for, from their perspective, um, obviously for controlling the economy from behind the scenes, controlling the, the country from behind the scenes. And then this final image of uh, Chance walking out into the water, onto the water. 
as if he were a Christ-like figure. Um, how do we situate ourselves in that? What do we, as the audience, what should we take away from this? Is this simply someone with perhaps potentially some insider knowledge of the people who really run things behind the scenes in the United States trying to lift the veil on that curtain? But then again, as you say, that wasn't even particularly part of the book. It was uh, added for the film version. Uh, is this meant in a way to undermine that idea? Oh, this is just silly. Look at how silly this is. And look at how, you know, when he's walking on water, it's clearly just all a metaphor for something. This isn't how the things really work. It, what is the effect of this on A, the general audience, and B, what should we take away from it as more informed audience, I hope? Good heavens. Uh, that's a huge <laughs> question. Um, and of course, I, I, I'm going to say, uh, perhaps I overstated it. I don't remember now. No, there is something of this critique of the oligarchy in the book. I just don't think it's as stark as it is in the film. Um, it's just extended in the film, but it's certainly there. But therefore, perhaps, in that it isn't quite so much of the book, perhaps one be justified in thinking that was less of the original idea. Um, that might be true. It's very difficult to say what would be the take-home message about the book it's working on so many different levels there are so many different things that are being said i mean there are so many commentaries on this film out there with wildly different ideas i mean i came across an esoteric reading of, of, of the film which I, I didn't find at all convincing and in fact so unconvincing i can't even remember anything about it to be honest but people do pick up on different elements of it and there is also i mean it is related to the main point that we've already I think we've already discussed about the film but it's it's a kind of sub idea which has to do with some quasi religious symbolism and of course the presence of uh, Nietzsche's critique of morality and religion is also in there but I don't think it's particularly Nietzschean either um, I don't know if you want to discuss all that kind of thing but I mean there are references to 2001 <laughs> um, which which has the music of Alza Sprach Zarathustra mm, which is, right. which is yes, Strauss's yes, tone yes, poem yes, yes. working on the idea of uh, the work by Nietzsche and etc there are loads of themes right. in that, that in fact discuss. I didn't I did note that as it was playing I thought why on earth are they mm. is this a, I mean are they they're clearly evoking in the history of cinema mm. when you hear that theme you were clearly thinking of 2001 but i couldn't yeah, figure cool. out exactly what role it was playing in the movie at that point as i recall that's when he first leaves the house and is basically walking around washington dc for the first time and seeing its dilapidated state and suddenly thus right. zarathustra is playing in the background <laughs> i i didn't really understand yes. the, the significance of that reference well, I can't claim to have a full understanding of it. I can only, you know, sort of share with you that the ideas that are formulated provisionally about it. Um, so, I mean, this music is, as I say, from Richard Strauss's tone poems. It's just the beginning of it. Which people will be familiar with that fanfare music, but it's it's reworked as a sort of jazz funk style by the composer of the film, and I think that's done partly because he's coming out into the real world and he's had this sheltered upper middle class existence inside the house and garden and now he's coming out into what is now a very rundown um streetwise kind of existence with some gangs on the street and that kind of thing and so i think that the funk jazz so joins his, those two his things version together of the monolith but, moment is encountering the real world instead of the television world well I, yeah yes but i think the main monolith moment is when he gets to the tv shop yeah. so let me just go back just a second he, he's uh I think we have to bring in some of the religious symbolism here to make sense of what's being kind of said. And, and I think we do have the, the allegory of the Garden of Eden with the garden, because he's he's a gardener, as Adam, you know, is the, the sort of priestly figure in the Garden of Eden um, who tills and keeps the ground. And we have, of course, later in the film, we have Eve, who is the character with whom he 
doesn't actually form a romantic uh, entanglement, but that's what she wants anyway. So he's she is likely, you know, the Eve character there, and he is ejected. He's ejected from the uh, garden. Um, The old man has died, so we there have the Nietzschean sort of God is dead idea. So now Chance is going out from his um, simplicity, Adamic simplicity, one might say, um, going out into finding himself in now the the difficult, hard world outside of the garden. And he immediately, in the book, it's very immediate. There are a few things in the film that are added, but in the book, it's pretty quick. He's going past a TV shop and he sees in, in the window a television for sale, but it's showing himself. He sees himself. He comes to a kind of self-awareness. Uh, he doesn't because he's a blank, so he doesn't really, but there's a potential to come to a self-awareness at that point. And we just had the Alza Sprach Zaratustra music there and the, the kind of the death of God kind of idea, the Nietzschean uh, idea, you know. And it's connoting, of course, 2001, where at the end, you know, we have the cosmic child who's who's born at the end of this kind of evolutionary process. There are so many ideas going on here, and I can't help <laughs> thinking that it's saying that the chance is somehow... Mm. coming into his true self or he's having the opportunities to come into his true self at that point but the thing is it's i don't think it's nietzschean it's almost like a as as much an unraveling of some religious ideas as it is unraveling of a critique of those ideas because chance he doesn't become an ubermensch right exactly he's just a blank so even that reading that perspectival kind of reading of reality itself is deconstructed he's just he just continues blankly through the film and it's everybody else who reads onto him what they want and so i feel that the film is all about this business of reading what you want to mm-hmm. onto who is presented to you i think it's saying to us you know be careful as you're doing that that these are really your own thoughts that you're projecting onto yes. this person who's presented to you be careful that your thoughts that you think are your thoughts are not coming from the oligarchy as it were or the, the powers that should not be who are informing your mind who are molding your mind through the media through tv whatever it is and you think ah yes this is the person i should respect this is the person i should give my vote to this is the person etc etc be careful that you are really thinking for yourself yeah. now maybe yeah, yeah. that is my reading of it and mm-hmm. i may be wrong Maybe Kaczynski is saying, uh, Ashby is saying, look, you make of it what you like. So maybe I'm just doing that. Maybe well, but, an, but uh, nice Jesus of, of this text, you know, rather than exegesis. Right. Well, but on the, on that note, though, it is interesting. You come to essentially the same conclusion as as Roger Ebert, who uh, in the in his summary comes to the, the conclusion, the movie's implications are alarming. Is it possible that we are all just clever versions of Chance the Gardener, that we are trained from an early age to respond automatically to given words and concepts? that we never really think out much of anything for ourselves, but are content to repeat what works for others in the same situation. And it really does, I think, give the thoughtful viewer pause to reflect on those questions, if uh, they choose to do so. In that context, then, do we read the final, I think probably most famous line of the film, life is a state of mind, do we read that then as a a glorification of that concept? We should embrace the fact life is a state of mind and strive to be a chance the gardener? Or is it meant to satirize that idea and to show the the hollowness of it? Yes, I think it works on different levels. I did initially when I heard that, obviously I thought it was funny and it is funny. There is the kind of mystic element to it. Life is a state of mind. So if you you know, in a kind of new agey way, if you think hard enough, you could even walk on water. You know, you can mold reality kind of thing. But then there is a deeper 
analysis of that, where I think it is actually saying to us, yes, indeed, um, life for you is about your state of mind. Be careful how you use it, how you interpret reality. Now, I think this is why the ending works. And I have so many people say that they don't think it doesn't work, but I think it does, because I think at that moment, the whole thing is flipped around onto us. And we're invited to interpret that last scene completely on our own, because it jars so much with the rest of the film. Although it does weirdly continue some of those quasi-religious sim- symbol things, yeah. because, I mean, within Christian theology, of course, Jesus would be seen, as far as the, Paul the Apostle is concerned, as the second Adam. So you have a link there to the beginning i don't know how much because you would have you know thought along those lines and he gave parables about gardening so there you go absolutely yeah but it sort of flips at that point and i wonder whether at that point we're being challenged to look beyond the the joke that's there you know the challenge is what do you make of this incongruous scene life is a state of mind pay attention to how you are actually interpreting it yeah well, it certainly, it, it obviously and, and it completely asks the viewer to at least try to make something of this movie more than just a joke, um, to reflect on oh, something. It, it certainly is that, that kind of incongruous moment. I, I quite enjoyed that, actually, but yes. I understand a lot of people probably are looking yeah, for a more yeah. simple and straightforward narrative and are not going to get it here, but that's fine by me. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I thought it was quite a well-done movie at any rate for, for what that's worth, and it certainly did have embedded in it quite a bit of social commentary and satire, which, as I say, only becomes more stinging and biting as, as time moves forward and uh, as we see, as I say, the perhaps the fruition, the culmination of this uh, TV soundbite culture in the election cycle we see going on right now. So a lot to take in from this, but uh, I think that pretty much runs the gamut of what I wanted to talk about today. Is there any other aspects of this you wanted to run through? Oh, good heavens. There are so many things about it that interest me. Of course, as a, as a trained musician, I love the music and there are other things about the music that interest me, but I don't know whether that's going to just sort of deflate things now, now that we've talked about the, as you say, the meat and potatoes of the film. Right. Well, yes, perhaps we will uh, leave the discussion about the score for another time. But, uh, uh, well, uh, okay, let me throw in this final nugget um, for whatever it's uh-huh. worth. Um, because, strangely enough, so many things seem to revolve around the Laurel Canyon-Charles Manson connection. Especially even in the film literature New World Order series, where there's the Frankenheimer-Manchurian um, uh, candidate connection to the Manson murders and JFK and all of that. But... Um, just on that note, Jerzy Kozinski was apparently on his way to Sharon Tate's house the night of the Manson murders and was delayed on uh, his flight in New York. So he didn't make it to Los Angeles. So may have actually escaped being killed himself that night. So again, just another strange part. But hey, who knows if that's oh. even a true story. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is quite a disorientating experience, James, I have to say. I feel like I'm, I'm living inside somebody else's novel, perhaps a, a mixture of Gajinsky and you, so that's, that is very strange. <laughs> well, I'm glad we didn't tie a nice bow on everything here, because that would be much too pat away to to take a look at a movie that's so profoundly disorienting. All right, well, let's wrench ourselves out of this fun, and just for a moment, let for people in the audience who don't know about The Mind Renewed, why don't we tell them about your podcast? Oh, that's very kind of you. Um, right, okay, what's the mind renewed? Well, I, I call it 
the mind renewed thinking Christianly in a new world order. And uh, that I think in some cases that may put people off because they think it's going to be all about just Christian theology or something like that. But no, basically what I'm doing is I mean, I, I am a Christian believer and I'm trying to explore some of the issues of the age that we live in from my own worldview perspective, which I think, you know, we, we all do and should do. But in doing that, I'm trying to build some bridges. I don't really like that phrase, but it, it, it serves a purpose. There's so much misunderstanding, I think, between different camps of people out there who are trying to understand the world. I, I don't really want to be defined by a camp and yet remain faithful to my worldview. So what I'm trying to do, for example, is to implore fellow believers to understand that we are actually being having our reality constructed or we're being lied to in so many ways. And yet at the same time, I'm also trying to appeal to people who are adherents of other belief systems and, and saying, look, I and people like me share the same kind of concerns that you do. So you see what I mean? I'm trying to break down some of these, which I think are artificial barriers, yes. barriers that are constructed by other people to get us <laughs> you right. know, arguing against each other. But that doesn't mean, therefore... My podcast and website is is saying, well, I'm not going to express anything that I believe. Absolutely not. I think we should express what we believe, but you know, shake hands with each other where we where we can, agree where we can, and uh, advance forward where we can. So that's basically what I'm trying to do with the podcast. And I, I thank you, James, for having come on a couple of times. I think it is, isn't it? And, yes, uh, indeed. And yeah. uh, and let me again yes. just say that I really do respect your interview style. I think you you really do bring out some some very good conversations. And in fact, one of one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had was our conversation that uh, is up on YouTube, James Corbett interview, Anatomy of the New World Order. I posted it to the Corbett Report as interview 600, so people can go back and listen to that. I think we got into quite a bit of depth about the, the structure of the New World Order and how, that, how we can really define that and understand that. So that was a very good interview. I hope people will re-listen will re to that if they've listened to it before or listened to it for the first time and hopefully start listening to your other interviews on a wide range of subjects, including... Even occasionally things like being there. So <laughs> yeah, hopefully this will live thank up you. to the canon of, uh, of Julian Charles interviews. Well, thank you again for your time. I really do appreciate you coming and sharing your insights into this film. Well, thank you very much, James, for having me on. It's a, a great privilege. I've been uh, you know, following your work for many years. And so it's, it's wonderful of you to have me on. Thank you. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and that it will encourage you, if you haven't seen the movie, to get a copy and watch it. James said there, it's quite a well-made film. Well, I will go further than that, and I will say that I think it is a very well-made film indeed. And I, in fact, would put it among the top handful of favourite films for me. I think it's a great film for what that's worth. Or at least that is a recommendation from me. So next week, we're going to start properly with the first interview where I shall be speaking with lawyer and university lecturer Adiyinka Mackinder for an interview centering in his forthcoming academic paper, Can the British State Convict Itself? And the week after, we're talking to another lawyer, actually, and author Mark Antonacci, the founder and president of the Test the Shroud Foundation, to discuss his fascinating book, Test the Shroud. And the week after, we'll be speaking again to Dr. Martin Erdman, who we haven't spoken to for a couple of years or so. He'll be joining us again for an interview on the subject, The Kingdom, Divine or Human, Christianity in Conflict with American Civic Religion. 
And then we'll be looking at the Christmas period, and I'm very much hoping that the Fireside Nephilim Boys will be coming back on the show at the new year. Uh, that's the Secret Society, affiliated to Like Flint Radio, which I'm very honoured to be a member of that Secret Society. And uh, hopefully they'll be seeing out 2016 and seeing in 2017 on New Year's Eve. Um, last year we had a hugely enjoyable conversation hilarious at times uh, with a chat about some things that got our goats <laughs> during 2015 and uh, this time I'm not quite sure what we'll be doing but we'll probably be looking at some internet memes that have been niggling us for the last 12 months or so and I'm very much hoping that we'll be able to finish together that conversation with uh, a glass of champagne as the clock strikes 12 so be there or be square and then in the new year although there's an awful lot yet to organize I have the high probability that I'll be speaking to Tom Secker and Dr. Graham McQueen, both of whom have been on the show in the past, as many of you will know. Well, that's it for today. As I say, I'm just checking in for today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You've been listening to me, Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the very near future. <laughs>